<clears throat> in the first year of Emily and my marriage, we decided that we were going to get a dog. And so uh, our house had about a third of an acre, so it left us some, some options on size of dog and how much space they would need for exercise and that. And after doing some research, we ended up with a German shepherd named Jasmine. Now, when we bought our house, the entire property was fenced, not just the backyard, but the fence actually stopped at the driveway, so there was no actual enclosure. You, you can see it up on the screen. Where it connects down the driveway, we actually had to build that ourselves because it's not a good thing for a dog if you've got a fence without any actual enclosure. Um, and so before we had the, the fence built in there, we just put a stake in the ground, had a long leash, and would kind of keep Jasmine on the leash, and then we'd take her off and take her for a run or for you know, throwing the ball, fetch to the, the right, the left, having all kinds of space, and it, was, uh, it ended up being really, really fun. Well, we, we build the fence, and uh, it turns out I, I'd never built a fence before, but it's pretty hard work to stretch out those chain link things, and we, we finally got the thing done, and I was ready to be done with that, and so we picked up the ball, and without even thinking, I just turned and threw the ball like I had across the driveway right across where I had just built the fence. Like, dummy, what are you thinking? And so Jasmine bolts for the driveway to get the ball, and without missing a stride at all, just hurdles the fence. <laughs> I mean, it was like straight out of the Olympics. Just boom, she's just going. And she goes and she gets the ball and runs back, and then she kind of like realizes what she just did. It's like, oh, there's a fence there. I wasn't supposed to do that. And so she runs up the driveway, around through the gate, and comes back to me kind of with her tail between her legs a little bit. And I, I'd read all this stuff in my research about the staggering athleticism and intelligence of German shepherds. And I met it face to face in one quick moment like that of, wow, we actually have an unbelievable dog right here. The interesting thing was, in all the, the rest of the time that we had Jasmine, she never again jumped the fence. She knew, like, oh, I, I wasn't supposed to do that. And, uh, and you might be wondering, as I, as I start to tell the story about my dog Jasmine building a fence, what exactly does this have to do with the sermon title that you saw a moment ago, The Gospel and Sexuality? I think the connection is this. We spend a lot of our lives thinking that we can run free wherever we want. And at some point, we realize that God has designed fences for our sexuality, and sometimes we see the wisdom of his design, and sometimes we don't see the wisdom of his design. And sometimes we might be capable of jumping over the fence and trying to do it our own way. But there's a bigger question that's left saying, I know maybe I can do that, but should I do that? You know, my dog Jasmine, she might have said, well, you know, Justin, it's not hurting anyone else for me to jump over the fence and go get the ball and come back. That fence feels so constraining. I'm a big dog. I need my exercise after all. Haven't you thought of that, Justin? She might have said, Justin, I'm a smart dog. I know other dogs are not as smart as me. They run out in the road and they get hit, but I can handle it. But maybe Jasmine would have been also wise to consider that her master knows better than her. Maybe she would have been wise to consider that each year in the U.S. alone, 1.2 million dogs get hit by cars. So maybe her so-called freedom wasn't quite as free as she initially thought. And with the exorbitant cost of going to the vet and car repairs from these accidents, maybe her so-called freedom was costing others in ways that she couldn't recognize. 
Maybe her innate desire for exercise could be fulfilled in ways that she didn't initially think of. You see, all of that is a, is a long way of saying maybe there's a better version of her existence and flourishing than she would initially think of. I think in, in similar ways, we're tempted to think that God's design for our sexuality can be overly restrictive. And maybe we want to jump over the fence in different ways, right? Maybe it's in rejecting his design for gender roles. Maybe we want to jump over the fence in terms of use of private pornography or in crass sexual jokes or in homosexual behavior, or lust for, some, for someone we're not married to, or a whole host of other sexual sins. Like, there's all kinds of ways we want to jump over that fence. But whatever the particular way, at the end of the day, we're essentially saying, God, I think I know better than you. I think this will bring more joy, more satisfaction. This is a better way to live. Now, if you're new at Parkside, it's like your first Sunday here. First off, welcome, or sort of jumping into the deep end. I, I get that. Uh, but you've actually joined us in the middle of a, a new sermon series. This is our second week in it, and you see on the banners, it's called Not Your Own. We're looking at the, the dominant narrative of our culture, that you belong to yourself, that you should be true to yourself, that you should look into your own heart and see what's right. And I think if you pay attention, you'll start to see this narrative everywhere. Like yesterday, I was out in the yard doing some yard work. I was cutting down a couple of trees and was listening to the soundtrack of The Greatest Showman. You can either celebrate that with me or judge me for it, however you feel about that. But there's the, uh, there's the song, Rewrite the Stars. And I, I was struck just yesterday listening to it, where near the end of the song, there's this, this line that says, it's up to you and it's up to me. No one can say what we get to be. Why don't we rewrite the stars and change the world to be ours tonight? You open your eyes, you start to see this underlying narrative, and it's everywhere. And so I hope as you notice what you're doing, what your kids are doing, what your grandkids are doing, you'll pay attention not just to the, the sound bites that show up on Twitter and Fox News, but to see the underlying narratives as well and how those are shaping and discipling us into a particular way of thinking. So in, in this series, what we hope to do is examine that dominant narrative that you belong to yourself. You should be true to you. And we want to set that up against biblical truth on a whole host of topics. So sexuality is obviously a, a hot-button issue. It can be a, a loaded topic for a whole host of reasons. Our culture is so confused about sexuality, I found it difficult in preparation to find appropriate words to describe just how confused we are. And yet, despite all the confusion around us, we know that this book, God's Word, speaks with great clarity to these issues. So what feels confusing, maybe to many around us, need not be as confusing as, uh, as we're often told, perhaps. I think one of the things that's important to recognize is the Bible. When it speaks to sexuality, it's talking about something much bigger than our sexual urges. Our culture wants to reduce sexuality to urges I'm feeling in the moment, and so today what I want to do is lay out a positive vision, a positive vision for how the Bible informs and transforms what it means to be male and female, our sexuality. And I know that some of you get excited when I start to talk about this topic, and others of you get really nervous when I start to talk about this topic. I think both of those positions are understandable if you just, you know, try to enter into different people's worlds and why they might feel that way. But I want you to know that I come to this conversation as a pastor with friends that face all sorts of sexual questions. I come to the conversation with friends 
where I've been grappling with a whole host of sexual questions with them from the Bible for years. We've been walking together through them. Questions of singleness, questions of infertility, questions of same-sex attraction, questions of abuse, questions of addiction, and what we're supposed to do about all of it. So I want you to know at the beginning, like this isn't an abstraction for me. This isn't a path to a culture war. It's, it's very personal. I see on the other side of all these issues, real people. They're asking real questions about what God has or hasn't designed and what in the world we're supposed to do with it. So, so that being said, I want to start out by saying just a couple of things that I'm not going to do this morning. It's a pretty broad topic, and it might be helpful to narrow it down a little bit. Um, four things I'm not going to do. One, I'm not going to lay out explicitly what legislative directives maybe we should be looking at here. Look, I understand that political, th political theology and public policy are really, really important. It's just not the main focus of what we're doing this morning. Okay? Second, I'm not actually going to say a ton about gender identity. That's an important but sort of related conversation, uh, but it's a little different. So we would say that gender identity is not merely a social construct. In other words, it can't be divorced from your biological sex, no matter how loud the cultural revolutionaries want to say that. Um, if you'd like some more information about that and to dig a little deeper, this book by Andrew Walker called God and the Transgender Debate is a really helpful resource that I would point you to. Uh, and maybe at another point, we can come back and talk more about that from the pulpit, but that won't be the, the main theme of this morning. Uh, third thing I'm not going to do, we're not going to cover every possible sexual deviation this morning. Uh, we will hit some common objections, but perhaps you know that federal agents, when they're looking at counterfeit currency, spend the majority of their time looking at what the actual government-issued currency looks like. And the more you know the real thing, the easier it is to spot the counterfeit. Well, we're going to take a similar approach this morning. Let's build a positive case of what the Bible actually says here. And then that means that in 45 minutes, there's probably some objections and questions we can't get to all of them. I would just say this. I hope that if I don't cover a topic or a question that you're wondering about, that you'll stop by afterwards and we can continue the conversation either after the service we're over coffee this week, because uh, there's certainly a lot to say here. Uh, fourth, finally, what I'm not going to do, I, I'm not going to rest and settle for weak arguments that are just pointing to a single verse as a cross-reference to make a point, okay? What, what that ends up doing is it's an approach that ends up playing defense and sort of putting out fires, like, oh, I got a verse here, I got a verse there, I got a verse there, but it's not actually building a positive case for what the Bible says on the whole of this. So instead, what we want to do is say, what does the whole Bible say about this? Build a strong case rather than just trying to put out fires here, there, everywhere where people point back. Maybe you think of it this way. We're going to build a house with a deep foundation and a basement. We're not going to build a pop-up camper. Because when the tornadoes of cultural change come along, you're going to need a house with a deep foundation and a solid basement to hide from that rather than a pop-up camper. And actually, you're going to need to you know, retreat to the, the basement for a second, but you actually need to be launched back out. That's the, maybe the negative side of that analogy. Is, well, I'm just going to go hide from the culture. Like, no, 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 no. You need protection, know what we teach, and then be launched out from there. Um, all right. We're getting close to actually getting into the points here. There, there's one more important thing. There, there's a lot to say. You guys, you bear with me. You know there's a lot on this. Um, I recognize there's some of you here today that maybe you've heard... People, Christians talk about sexuality, and all you've heard is just a random Bible verse thrown at you that condemns you. 
And I hope what you hear this morning is a different kind of message. I hope you hear a positive message, a vision of what God has designed that's actually for your good and for your flourishing and what that means for all of us. And there's others of you that have, that have been around the Bible for a long time, and you're probably not going to be shocked by anything I say this morning. But sometimes you wonder how to respond to some of the questions that are brought up. And I hope that maybe this morning I help to give you a vocabulary uh, and some, some words that can help you address what you intuitively know is true, but need some help sometimes in figuring out how to uh, answer challenges you hear around you. All right, so our outline this morning is going to be using the analogy of a fence. We started talking about fences. We'll start there. We're going to look at fence posts, actually six of them, for biblical sexuality. Before I get to those six fence posts, what I'd rather do is start with the conclusion, what I believe about sexuality, what our church believes about sexuality, actually more important than what I or our church believes, what the Bible says. And so I'm just going to read to you from our statement of faith. It'll be up on the screen. And then the six fence posts will help establish from the whole of Scripture how that's actually the right conclusion to land at. Here's what our statement of faith says at Parkside Bible Church. We believe God wonderfully and immutably creates all human beings as either male or female. These two distinct complementary genders beautifully picture both the image of and nature of God. Human marriage is also a picture of Jesus' marriage to the church, where he's the groom and the church is the bride. This imagery also demands that male and female be understood as distinct and complementary. God has gloriously ordained marriage to be an exclusive union of one man and one woman for life. God designed and planned sexual intimacy to be only within the context of marriage. All sexual activity outside of marriage is expressly forbidden. God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness are freely given to all who repent of their sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Further, we believe that all human beings should be treated with love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Hateful attitudes and behaviors are to be repudiated and are not in accord with the practices of this church and, far more importantly, with the teaching of Scripture. Because that, that shouldn't be a surprise. That's, that's our statement. We've, we affirm that together and uphold that together, but that's the perspective we're coming with. That's what the Bible says. Now, what you know, that's not just what our church says. That's what Christians have been teaching since there has ever been Christianity, since Jesus. This is not anything new, although it's challenges have maybe multiplied in recent days. All right, so, so that's the, the conclusion we're landing at. What are our six fence posts for biblical sexuality? These are principles for our sexuality designed by God for our flourishing. Each post is essential, and they collectively work together to shape the beautiful vision that God has designed for human sexuality. Fence post one, design matters. Design matters. Now, this is a general truth of life that you can recognize, I think, before you even come to the Bible. If you're going to ask if a watch is a good watch or a bad watch, you have to know what the thing is designed for. It's designed to tell time. If it doesn't tell time, it's not a good watch. But if you have a Fitbit and it tells time but can't track your steps, then you're going to say, well, it's actually a bad Fitbit because it was designed to do more than to just tell time, right? Design is really critical. What's the thing designed to do? answers, is it doing it well? Is it a good watch or a bad watch? Perhaps the clearest way that you can answer this from a human standpoint is to look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in that verse. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. All things. That means you and every aspect of your sexuality are from God, for God, and sustained by God. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism sort of summarizes it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you were designed to do. You were made to glorify God. You're made to see all of life as an opportunity to glorify God. So what this means very practically is that food doesn't terminate on itself. It's not the goal. Food is an opportunity to glorify God in the good gift of food. That work doesn't terminate on itself. Work is an opportunity to glorify God in that good gift. That money doesn't terminate on itself. Money is an opportunity to glorify God in that gift. And the same is true with sexuality. Right? Sex is a, doesn't terminate on itself. It's not the main end. No, it's an opportunity to glorify God in and through that. Now, all of those things I just listed, none of them are bad things in their own right, They're actually good things, good gifts from God. But when good things become ultimate things, I must have that, that's most important to me, that's what the Bible calls an idol. Where I want something more than I should, I want it more than God, in the place of God, and that becomes the most important thing. So for just a moment, as we're sort of beginning with this first fence post, let me help to illustrate this point with a thought experiment. I want you to experiment, I want you to imagine with me a world with zero sexual deviance. Imagine that world for a minute. No pornography, no gender dysphoria, no extramarital affairs, no same-sex attraction, no lustful thoughts from anyone anywhere. You can imagine that world. And in that world, no one worships and loves Jesus. Let me tell you, Satan would love that world. Satan would love that world. That is to say that heterosexuality isn't the ultimate goal here. The gospel and sexuality, recognizing design matters, fence post number one, that the goal is that more people would worship Jesus in every aspect of their being, including their sexuality. Design matters. Fence post number two. We need to embrace sameness and difference. Understand that God has made men and women, male and female, both the same in some key ways and different in some key ways. They're the same in that they're both human beings made in the image of God. They both have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And yet there's some really key gender differences that we have to recognize as well. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2 here where we see the, the sameness and the difference being laid out right next to each other. I believe it's on the screen. This is a little bit longer section, verse 15 to 25. It's about 10 verses, uh, but it's important to see the whole thing. Here's what Genesis 2 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Maybe I read that. We're talking about embracing sameness and difference. And your immediate reaction is to say, well, Justin, it's really old, not sure, six to 10,000-year-old book. Should I really be listening to that? I'm more someone who listens to the words of Jesus. Can you hit me with something from the New Testament? or at least the red-letter part of the Bible. Well, here's the thing. When Jesus was asked about marriage and people asked him questions, he went back and quoted this very passage. Hey, look, some things have changed. Like some parts of the Old Testament are not the same applied to us today. I get that. Jesus said, this part hasn't changed. This is still authoritative. And so if you want to know what Jesus believed, I just read it to you. Um, What we saw in that account is that there are differences between men and women But there are also differences that we can see in just general scientific observation that corresponds to what the Bible says, right? We see that man was made outside the garden and placed in the garden. He was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. What was his purpose? To work and to keep the garden. And so the form of man follows the function that man was designed for. So men are going to be generally taller and generally stronger than women and generally have greater bone density than women. Because God has designed them for a specific kind of work. And the woman was made in the garden. She's called to bring forth life and to cultivate life. So in women, you're going to see a a very different pelvic shape than what you see in men. Because the calling for which God has said, here's what you're called to do, how you are to live, how you're to fulfill the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, it's a little bit different. You see it in the Bible, or you can just look at biology, and it's clear these differences are there. And in puberty, as the chemicals and the hormones start to get going, you see a growth and a development in ways that correspond to the different callings placed on men and on women. So guys, they grow into their role. Their voice deepens. Their muscles begin to bulge. Their reproductive organs change. And you can see similar changes in ladies as well as they move through puberty. What this means is the call to fill the earth and to subdue it applies both to men and to women. It's the same call for all humanity, but there's a difference in how they do it. You might say to fill the earth, subdue the earth, applies asymmetrically to men and to women, but they both have essential roles in it. Now, we'll say more about this next week as we start to talk about marriage specifically and not just sexuality in general. Uh, But if you want to think of kind of an everyday example to illustrate the sameness and difference we ought to recognize, you think about a computer port where there's a USB, there's a a male end and a female end, you need them to be the same, that they're both USB, and you need them to be different. One's a male end, one a female end. They're both USB and they're both male ends, that's not going to accomplish the function that's supposed to happen there. If you say, well, we want the difference, male, female, 
but you go difference plus difference, male, female is different, but you went USB with HDMI, that's also not going to accomplish the purpose it's designed. There needs to be sameness and difference at the exact same time. So we take the sameness and the difference and we apply it to sexuality in the human landscape. And if we lose the sameness, not the same in terms of humanity, made the image of God, what you end up getting is subjugation. And generally men thinking that they're tough guys when in fact they're just bullies who think that women exist to cater to their every need and every desire. We have a, a word for that. Um, it's called idiots. <laughs> that, that's not what the Bible teaches, all right? However, at our moment in history, the far greater threat is not that we would lose the sameness, but that we would lose the difference. That's where our, our world is, is raging right now. And we, we're forced to ask, are there really different roles and responsibilities that God in his kindness has ordained for each sex? Men, it's critical that you recognize that God created you to be leaders and protectors, that you lead yourself. Men, it's critical that you step up and lead your families, and you step up and lead within God's church because that is what he, what he has called you to do. We need you to do that. We need you to be strong spiritually. We need you to be strong emotionally. We need you to be strong physically so that you can lead and protect as God has designed. And you need to reject, on the one hand, a toxic masculinity, bully culture, and at the same time, we need you to reject the full-on emasculation that our culture intends for you. You've got to reject both of those and lead with humility as God has designed. And ladies, we need you to recognize that God has specifically designed roles and responsibilities for you as well. That childbearing is a good gift to recognize that we need you to bring care and nurture and emotional intelligence to remind men that getting a bigger hammer isn't usually the best answer, no matter how much we think that it is. Because there's a cultivating role that the Lord has given you, where there's a unique need, where man is not, it's not good that man should be alone. He, you put a bunch of dudes together, and they're going to end up in the same ditches over and over and over and over again. It's not good that man should be alone. Genesis 2.18 says, God made a helper fit for man. Sometimes we get tripped up on that, like, am I a helper? Am I less than? Is it a second-class citizen? You need to understand that people maybe try to describe and define it that way, but that word helper is not a secondary term at all in the Bible. In fact, God himself is called our helper many times. In the call to worship today, I read from Psalm 115, where God calls himself our helper, so it's not a term of like first class, second class, better, worse. It's a term of complementary design that there would be full human flourishing. Second fence post, you have to see that we embrace sameness and difference. You can't lose either of them. Here's the third fence post for biblical sexuality. You recognize the fall brings disorder. I don't mean the fall season, although the leaves do come down. That does call, cause disorder in its own way. But no, I mean the fall of man and sin that was brought into the world, recorded in Genesis 3, brings disorder. 
What we recognize is that when man lost his relationship with God in Eden, he also lost his relationship with himself, the ability to rightly know himself, and his relationship with others, to rightly relate to others. See, when we lost that relationship with God, we lost a lot more than just a relationship with God. And we see ourselves wrongly, we see, our other, see others wrongly, and our minds become dark. Romans chapter 1 describes this. It is on the screen, and we'll read about seven verses here, and you'll, you'll see what I've just been describing made plain in the passage from Romans 1. Here's what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I, I recognize there, there's a lot in that passage. Probably preach about half a dozen sermons from it if we wanted to like slow down and go phrase by phrase. But here's the main thing to see. Because of sin, we should expect, I should expect, you should expect, your desires to be disordered in all areas of life. Because of sin, you should expect your desires to be disordered in all areas of life. This means I'm going to look to created things and ask them to give me what only the Creator God can do. I'm going to look to food and ask for satisfaction that can only come from Jesus. I look to relationships and ask for fulfillment that can only come from Jesus. I look to vacation and ask for rest that can only come from Jesus. I look to sex and ask for delight that can only come from Jesus. I look to work and ask for significance that can only come from Jesus. I expect my desires in all areas of life to be disordered because of sin. So my starting point, point, my ground zero, is that because of sin in my life and in the whole world, my inner desires cannot and should not be trusted. That is to say, even though I'm a pastor, I know that I am my core. I know I'm bad at my core, and you should know that too. And, and maybe I start to say that, you think, boy, Justin, that just sounds kind of harsh, little dark, not a positive, uplifting K-love kind of message this morning. We're not going to go there. <laughs> but maybe, man, I don't know, Luke Bryan says he believes most people are good and mamas ought to play, uh, apply or be eligible for sainthood. I forget how that line goes. He says most people are good. And, and maybe, maybe we need a message more like that of positivity. And isn't that what is really true? Maybe I'm more with him. And although it sounds good and it's a catchy tune and it certainly makes us feel better about ourselves, I don't think it takes long of looking at the world to recognize, no, humans are curved in on themselves. They want what's good for them, right? We live in a capitalist society. I think capitalism's a good thing, but what do we know about capitalism? Without government regulation, 
it's going to run headlong towards greed and oppressing others and trampling them so that somebody can get richer. And well, we wouldn't even, we wouldn't do that to our kids. We wouldn't run over our kids to get richer. Well, why do you think you need child labor laws? Right? We're curved in on ourselves. What's good for me? I'm going to go get what's good for me. If you've ever managed people, you know that people do what you inspect, not what you expect. Because if there's a quicker way to get the, the promotion, the money, the thing I want with less effort, I'm going to choose the easier way. Right? If you've ever had any kids, you know that you don't have to treat, teach them to advocate for themselves. You don't have to teach them the phrase, that's not fair. You don't have to teach them the phrase, mine! So wherever you look, you know, yeah, humans are curved in on themselves. At the core, our desires aren't good. They're fundamentally selfish. And so if it's true that my inner desires are basically destructive, then let me just restate to you what Romans 1 told us. That means that all of us will become futile in our thinking. That means that you will become futile in your thinking. That means that your foolish heart will become darkened. That means that you will claim to be wise, yet be a fool. And it means that we will express that foolishness by turning to impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies in a whole host of ways. If all that's true, then Romans 1 says that it will continue and it will manifest itself in a whole host of ways. Had I continued reading the next couple of verses would say, here are the ways that those disordered desires, your disordered loves will show up in envy, wanting somebody else's stuff, in strife, which is prone to dissension and divisiveness, in deceit, I don't tell the truth because it helps me out, in boasting, I want you to know all about the things I've done, in gossip, in disobedience to parents, Applies everywhere, right? But today we're talking about sexuality. And so if we say our inner desires are generally destructive, then applied to our sexuality, that means that the sexual urges that I have for that person I'm not married to are destructive. It means that the sexual urges I have for the person of the same sex are destructive. It means the sexual urges I have for that image on my phone are destructive, it means that I recognize that I was born with all sorts of desires that are contrary to God's design, and they are destructive. And that's why the argument of, well, I was born this way isn't persuasive. Because there's all sorts of desires I was born with that are absolutely contrary to God's design and destructive for my life and those around me. So the question isn't, how was I born, but what has God designed? And I know as we say that, that there comes a question where we say, Justin, there are some aspects that it's, it's clear to see how it's destructive for others, but there's a lot of sexual activity that doesn't seem destructive to others. Maybe it's the private use of pornography, like how is this hurting others? Maybe it's a, a same-sex partner in a long-term committed relationship. How is that hurting others? Maybe it's premarital, consensual sex. Like, Justin, how is that hurting others? Why do you seem to care so much who I sleep with? Maybe that's the question that you're asking this morning. It's a great question. I'm glad that you've asked that. I think in answering that, we have to recognize it does come back to design. That if sex is designed for specific purposes, 
then to go against that purpose will bring destructive consequences for yourself and for others. If I give an analogy that maybe helps to speak to that a little bit, uh, think of the food that you eat. Why is there a big movement today against ultra-processed foods? Why is that? Some think they're good, they enjoy them. Others think they're awful and they ought to be banned. But we recognize that these foods go against the design of the human body. Now, teaching high school health 12, 15 years ago, I was required by the state of Indiana to provide instruction in which foods are designed for the human body to be healthy. So it wasn't just a matter of my personal preferences here. It was like, no, this is a good thing or a bad thing to be distributed to the broader world. Like, we just have to make an assessment there. And so what I told the kids that love Taco Bell, I said, guys, this is destructive for you even if you don't see the problem with the cheesy gordita crunch. <laughs> even if you love it. And what happens is when you eat it, you're inevitably promoting it. And the more you promote that, it's going to end up being destructive for others, probably in ways that you don't necessarily see. There's a similar argument to be made with all forms of sexual deviation that move away from God's design. It will be destructive for you, and it will end up being destructive for others. And sometimes it's more obvious how it's going to impact others and sometimes less obvious. But if you know it's designed in a specific way for a specific purpose, that informs how we think about this conversation. All of that comes back to our third fence post, saying the fall brings disorder, and so my expectation for normal is that I'm looking inside at my desires, and each of us have to do this, look in at our desires and say, I didn't choose this desire, but I am going to deny this desire. I'm not going to fulfill this desire. I'm actually going to put this desire to death because it's not aligned with God's good design. Fence post three, the fall brings disorder. That brings us to fence post four. Jesus welcomes all. This is a pretty significant turn in the tenor of what we're saying here. I recognize that. But if you were to go back to the, the first century and track the last 2,000 years, what you would find is a long history of people ranking sins to make other people's sins look bad and their own sins that look not so bad. It's a very long pattern that humans have leaned into. And Jesus enters into the world, and he essentially says, no amount of disorder in your life can keep you, or can keep me from you. No amount of disorder in your house can keep me from entering into your house. In fact, I'll actually come to your house. The beginning of John's gospel, that's essentially what he says, John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst. I'm going to come near to you. And you look through his life, and what he's saying is, whatever the rest of the world says, nope, that's too ostracizing, too far out, you're too distant, that's not going to be a barrier. So he goes to John 4. Jesus goes to the woman at the well, where the rest of the world says, no, I don't have room for you. You're too disordered. And he says, no, I'm going to actively pursue you and welcome you. Or you go to John 7, and there's the woman caught in adultery. And all these guys are standing around ready to stone her and condemn her. And Jesus says, no, no, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. You're welcome at my table and in my house. Or in Luke chapter 7, 
all of Jesus' opponents are about to criticize him and say, man, the, you must be a drunk because the only reason somebody would spend so much time at the bar as you is if he's a drunk. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I'm welcoming all who will come, and I'm going to go where they're at. Or Luke 19, you find the tax collector Zacchaeus, one of the, the greediest, one of the biggest swindlers in the ancient world. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to have lunch at your house today, Zacchaeus. I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to come see you. Or you think about Acts chapter 9. And Saul, who's made a career of being a religiously motivated terrorist, turns out there's nothing new under the sun, killing Christians for his job. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to go straight to you, Saul. I'm going to welcome anyone who will repent. Or you get it in kind of a didactic teaching form, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came while you're still a sinner. Or Ephesians 2 you go to, it says, Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, who were very disordered. So I see how disordered you were. Or you read it in narrative form in 1 Corinthians 6. After all the, the things that are against God's will and against his design, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, And such were some of you. And God came and welcomed you into his family. Or Matthew chapter 10, 11, sorry, not 10. He says, Jesus' own words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I could keep going, but maybe I've made the point there where Jesus says, wherever your sexuality is disordered, wherever it's not aligned with Scripture, Jesus welcomes you to come to him. Whether you're a single person who has idolized sexual fulfillment and longed for it for years, maybe you're a married person who's idolized sexual fulfillment with someone you're not married to, Maybe you experience same-sex attraction and you idolize sexual fulfillment in that way. However you're tempted to idolize your sexual desire over God's sexual design, Jesus still welcomes you. He says, come to me. His arms are wide open. But you do have to come to him. You can't stay where you're at to recognize you need him. I think one of Satan's great lies is to tell you that you're too dirty for God. You're damaged goods. He can't work in you or through you. He chooses other people who have got it all together. And Jesus' entire life could not be more clear in saying, no, that's an absolute lie from the pits of hell. I come and I seek those who are put to the side, those who are dirty, who recognize I need a Savior. Christians, I wonder, I wonder if some of us have gotten so good at distancing ourselves from sin and from the world, that if Jesus showed up, he wouldn't even recognize us as following his way. You've got a PhD, perhaps, in the words of Jesus, but you've not yet begun kindergarten in the ways of Jesus. You know all the Bible verses about this stuff, and yet you've drawn near to no one living a disordered life out of genuine love for them. You've not shown radical friendship to someone who's not walking according to Scripture. 
And I understand you start to talk about some of these things, it, it raises questions of, man, if I take this action, is it condoning that behavior? And how does all that play out? I understand that's a, a real conversation, a real difficulty. But I'd simply ask you this. Do you have the same level of concern that Jesus did for going near to those who are not yet followers of Jesus? Yes, you can know the words of Jesus, but have you followed the ways of Jesus? Fence post four, Jesus welcomes all. Fence post five, Jesus requires repentance. Jesus requires repentance. Perhaps the most single central message of the kingdom of God is to believe and to repent. And repent is a bit of a churchy word, what is meant by that. It's to do a 180. It's to change directions, change the way I think and change my actions. I was going this way, following myself and my own desires. I will turn. That's the process of repentance, the Bible says. And now I'm following Jesus, his design, instead of my desires. That's what it means to repent. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and from the very beginning, he's preaching repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his, his disciples, his apostles, picked up the message and ran with it. So Peter, we read in uh, Acts three nineteen, preaching, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Paul, we see preaching in Acts 17, he commands all people everywhere to repent. And it's not a popular message. We understand that. Jesus himself said in John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, that repentance is required. You have to make a change and a turn. Let's not be clear and miss the need for repentance here. John the Baptist was beheaded. He was killed for confronting an illegitimate marriage. And Jesus said that he was the greatest man ever born. He spoke truth when it was not popular. And it cost him his life. And Jesus said, yes, you preach repentance. So lest we hear fence post four and assume that Jesus is some guy walking around in Birkenstocks and long flowing hair saying, it's okay, bro, it's legal now. Recognize repentance is required. You say, Justin, I thought Jesus was warm, welcoming, inclusive. Look at your last fence post. But simply say, yes, he's a doctor who never turns anyone away from his clinic. His arms are open wide to anyone who will come. But you must take the prescription that he gives you. Essentially, he's looking, saying, sin has made you more disordered than you realize. It's a deadly disease, and you're going to die in eternal death, separated from God, in eternal judgment, unless you will turn from your sins and repent and follow me. Fact of the matter is, none of us like to hear that message. It's easy to think of somebody else that needs to do some repenting, easy to think of somebody else who's a little more disordered than you, but it's awfully difficult to look inward and say, man, I need repentance right now. Like, not in the abstract, not we need a preacher who will talk about repentance. I need repentance. That's a big difference. There's all kinds of cultural messages telling us that's a terrible message. That's not what's correct. 
On the one hand, you can maybe look out and you think of Lady Gaga singing, I was born this way. I don't need to repent. Lyrics are on the screen. It says, listen to me when I say I'm, be- I'm beautiful in my way. I don't need to repent because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. And yet at the same time, culturally, we know that it rings out well. It's a catchy tune. It sticks with you. But the self-help industry is just absolutely booming where we recognize no matter what she tells us, things aren't working out like we hoped they would. That's why this year more than 18 million self-help books will be sold. And that's before you consider used books or digital books. The culture crying out saying, I know that I'm not turning into the person I want to be. How can I do that? Friend, let me tell you the answer. It's like we're, we're looking for a full cup of ourselves, and we keep pouring water into a broken cup, and we think the answer is to get more water, and the answer is not to get more water, but a different cup. Instead of seeking fulfillment in the things you want and your desires to turn and say the only fulfillment, the only satisfaction, the only joy is to replace your cup with the cup of Jesus. I'm going to follow him now. That's why he would say in Luke chapter 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. You keep pouring more water in that cup, it's not going to work. But whoever loses his life and follows me will keep it. That's why the message of follow your heart is a fundamentally broken message. It's not going to work. That's why Martin Luther, some 500 years ago, would say all of life is repentance, turning away from self and to Jesus. You say, Justin, I'm, I hear what you're saying. I want to follow Jesus. I want to turn away from my desires into his design. But I still find myself attracted to people that I'm not supposed to be with. Whether it's people that I'm not married to, whether it's people of the same sex, or, or any other number of desires that are not good. What happens then? How's this supposed to work? Let me tell you, if you're asking what specifically is going to happen to those desires, here's the short answer. I don't exactly know. Here's what I do know. I've had friends who have sought daily to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus. And over a period of years of daily seeking to do that, those desires have changed. And I praise God for that, with those brothers and sisters who are following Jesus. But I've also got friends that I've walked with who said, Justin, I want to take up my cross, deny myself, follow Jesus, stop pursuing my desires, start pursuing his design, and the desires haven't changed. They persist, and it's a daily battle. It doesn't change like that. So however that works itself out, what I do know is this. An ongoing desire for a wrong thing isn't proof that it's a desire for a good thing. The fact that it's ongoing doesn't mean that it's right, whether it be heterosexually or homosexually. It applies across the board there. Okay, second, I know this, that for every temptation, God provides a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that sees you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. You may stand up under it. There's a way out. And... God's grace is sufficient for whatever challenges come our way. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
know that. And third, I know that all of our afflictions, whether it be desires I don't want, whether it be circumstances I don't want, whether it be anything that's incredibly hard, is meant to prepare our hearts for heaven where all wrongs will be put right, where all desires will be purified, where everything will be the way it's supposed to be. 2 Corinthians 4.19, these light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Those are the things I do know. That brings us to our sixth and final fence post. Sexuality reflects the gospel. Yes, design matters. Yes, embrace sameness and difference. Yes, the fall brings disorder. Jesus welcomes all. And he requires repentance. And lastly, sexuality reflects the gospel. What do I mean by that? If you look out at the stars, you know that the moon reflects the sun, and the sun is the greater body, and the moon is the lesser body. Our sexuality reflects the gospel. Our sexuality is the lesser thing. God's love for us on display in Jesus Christ is the greater thing. That means there's a bigger reality to the universe than your sexuality. It's pointing to something bigger. Ephesians 5 makes this plain. Verse 25, and then skipping down to verse 32, here's where we see it clearly taught. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and to the church. In other words, here's what it says. The way that a husband is called to lay down his life for his wife is a small picture of a larger reality of how Jesus laid down his life to redeem and protect the church. And the way that wives follow their husband's leadership, that reflects the beauty of the church following Christ's leadership. Now, this this greater reality undercuts the argument for so-called same-sex marriage. As if you can swap out man and woman with man and man or woman and woman, you can't swap out church and have Christ and Christ or swap out church, Christ and have church and church. There's a difference that's required there. The, The greater thing tells you what the lesser thing is like. This basically brings us back to the first fence post, that design matters. That your sexuality is designed in a specific way to point to the gospel. So if love is love, then who cares who I sleep with? And live and let live. But if sexuality points to a greater reality, then love is far more than love. It's a picture of the God of the universe and how he's loved us. And if you think about the entire bookends of the Bible, you find in Genesis 1, man and woman made in the garden to dwell with God in perfect relationship forever in paradise. They rebelled. They lost that. And you skip all the way ahead to the almost last chapter of the book. Genesis, or not Genesis, Revelation, chapter 19. And there's a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus sees his bride who's run away and he's now cleansed her, bringing her back to himself, to the ceremony, and they're enjoying paradise together. It's almost hard to wrap your mind around the beauty and the magnitude of, wait, this whole book is a love story? Of redeeming what was lost and bringing it back? That man and woman were made for each other, but more significantly, made for a relationship with God? You mean sexuality isn't primarily about you and how you identify and who you're attracted to, but God's enduring love for you? Yes, that's what I'm saying. 
It's as if he's saying, I want a deep relationship with you. Not, not as a king rules over subjects and commands them. Not as a, merely as a shepherd who is wiser than sheep and leads them in the right direction. But as lovers, where you're enraptured by his love for you. You say, I see your beauty and I'll gladly lay down my own desires because there's nothing better than being joined to you in an intimate relationship. Yes, that's what the whole Bible's about. And marriage and sexuality in a small way reflects that. Oh, we're pointing to something much bigger here. You say, how, Justin, do I know that laying down these desires, submitting them to Jesus, how do I know these are actually good fence posts? They're actually for my good, for my benefit. By fixing your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he's not cracking the whip from afar and not building a constraining cage for you, but he came and said, I'm going to lay down my life and it's going to cost me everything. So that wherever you've been disordered, it can be forgiven. And wherever you're dirty, it can be cleaned. And wherever you've run away, you can be brought back into a warm embrace with your Savior. As you fix your eyes on what he did for you, it strengthens you and empowers you to put your own desires to death, follow his design, and see God's glorious picture for your own sexuality. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this good gift of sexuality that you've given the amazing ways it points to your grand design. We ask for your help this morning, that we wouldn't look for others that need to do some repenting, but we would look inside our own hearts and see where our desires are wrongly ordered, where we've not submitted ourselves to you, where perhaps we've known the words of Jesus but not embraced the ways of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, this can only happen if you and your spirit will work mightily in our hearts and change us from the inside out. We ask for that in your name. Amen.